0: In the wake of February 24th, many Ukrainians, for understandable reasons, sought refuge either away from the front lines within Ukraine, or left the country entirely. We've spoken to two such people here on The Brief. On this episode, we're going to focus on a different group. People who, when the war broke out, were not in Ukraine. Many of them are not Ukrainian at all, and they decided to run towards the fire. Welcome back to the Bear Market Brief, I'm your host, Aaron. Joining us today is an organization called British Expeditionary Aid and Rescue. They deliver critically needed goods to folks in need, and they move vulnerable people and animals out of harm's way. Now, for security reasons that I hope you'll understand, I actually can't share our guest's name this episode. However, she is somebody I personally know. The other thing I note is that she's very humble about the work she does. I reached out to her asking for this interview, not the other way around. I'm also including both the organization's website and the donation link. If you're thinking about making a contribution around the anniversary of the war, this is a really good organization. We had a really moving conversation that I hope you'll enjoy. Let's jump in. Welcome to The Brief, great to have you with us today. As an introduction for our listeners, tell me a little bit about what British Expeditionary Aid and Rescue does.
1: Great to be here so we are a british team of volunteers evacuating people from the frontline areas we focus on vulnerable people so bedridden people disabled people amputees families with young children and also simply those who cannot afford to get themselves out of danger we also do aid runs into the places that that we find that need it most so either places that have been recently liberated post-occupation All places that might sadly be soon to fall under Russian occupation.
0: So let's rewind here, start at the very beginning of the war, this being around the anniversary of Russia's invasion. February 24th, 2022, where were you when you heard the news? What was going through your head? How did you decide that you were going to to go to Ukraine and intervene?
1: Mm, It was a very surreal time for, for a lot of people. It certainly was for me. I had actually just got back to the UK from the Middle East. I had taken a career break to go traveling there for four months and I'd just come back from Saudi Arabia. So I was already feeling a little bit of culture shock and I was isolating in a little Airbnb cottage with my dog to get a COVID test before going to see my family. And I remember very clearly waking up and opening the BBC news app on my phone and seeing what had happened and not being able to compute it at all, and being horrified by these images of tanks rolling across Europe, just as though we were back in World War Two. And I couldn't really compute it for a day or two, but two days later on Saturday morning, I, I woke up and felt very clearly that I was going to go. I'd had a Coming back from the Middle East, I'd been thinking about what to do next and, and where to go. And I'd had a very bizarre feeling, which I've never had before, and I'm not at all superstitious. I'd had a very strange feeling that something was about to happen. And this was it. And I felt very clearly that I should go because I'm I'm young. I don't have any children or dependents. My career was already on pause. My flat was rented out. My things were in storage. I canceled my Netflix subscription. So I I was free and able to go. So it it is that old phrase, if not me, then who? So it was a bit of a whirlwind after that. Um, I launched a fundraiser on the Monday, had raised enough money by the Wednesday to buy a load of sleeping bags because it was the cold that bothered me more than anything. So I bought as many as I could fit into my little Peugeot and filled it up. And the sleeping bags arrived on the Thursday. I packed the car on the Friday, Saturday and 6 a.m. on the Sunday I, I left. And two days later, I was in Ukraine.
0: So regarding getting to Ukraine, it's a moving you know, story of of your inspiration here and determination to do something, but a logistical question, if I might. So You were heading into Ukraine at a time that many people were trying to leave Ukraine. So how did you actually get into the country to get started?
1: Uh, It was much easier than than it is now, I can tell you that. (laughs) Um, It was, I mean, it was remarkably quick and easy. And and this is one of these things we all think of Ukraine as far away and, and certainly people in the UK being the far end of Europe. But I drove there in two days. A night to Germany, a night to Poland, and and the following day I was in. That was actually quite a, a key moment, sort of setting off for the border and driving down a motorway and then seeing every single other car and lorry on the motorway peel off to stay inside Poland. And I was the only car on that motorway heading heading for the border, which was slightly surreal. And people have asked me many times, you know, what is the scariest moment that you've experienced in Ukraine? But there aren't, things are not terrifying. If you know what you are dealing with at that moment, driving into that country, utterly alone, that was actually the time that took the most courage because I had no idea what was waiting on the other side. And I just had to trust that it would be all right. And at the border itself, it was actually (laughs) because there were so many people going out. Obviously, of course, there were a few people going in, but not many. So it was relatively easy. It was what was hard was Sitting there and waiting and seeing these long lines of women and children standing in the snow, freezing, waiting to get through and processed. And some children died of hypothermia at that time. So, for me to get through as a British woman on my own with a little car full of aid and I'd stuck Ukrainian and British flags on it to make it clear it was a humanitarian car, it was actually very easy for me to get through.
0: So what happened next? Do you have this car full of sleeping bags? Uh, How did you get them to people in need? How did you get situated?
1: Mm. I wasn't sure when I first did it how to find someone to take them to and and this is the the incredible phenomenon that's happened inside Ukraine. People say it has changed the face of humanitarian work because it is all networks and I am in probably at least 20 WhatsApp and signal groups of international volunteers who are all out here. So at that point, I wasn't in any of those groups yet, but I, I found a Facebook group and I said on there, I'm bringing aid in. Does anyone know where I can take these things? And luckily, I happened to be put in contact with a lovely Ukrainian man. And he told me where they were really needed at that time was in the railway station in Lviv because there were so many people trying to leave the country and the station was jammed full of people sleeping there, desperately waiting for a train that they could fit on. So that's where I took them. So I I drove straight into Lviv and I met him. He took me to the railway station. He showed me and you, you think of a train waiting room where people will sit. No, they'd cleared all the chairs away and it was just full of beds, makeshift beds that they had made particularly for women and children. And, and that's when I, I did my first evacuation that day. I'd also found someone else to put me in touch with, with women and children who needed to be taken out. And I met these two women and these two little girls and a man at a restaurant in Lviv. And we went to put them into my car, which was very small. And so trying to fit them and all their, all their life's belongings, that's all they had. And, The hardest moment was when I suddenly realized that, of course, the father of one of these little girls who was there wasn't coming with us. He had traveled to that point to make sure that his wife and his little girl safely reached me. And I had to stand there and watch him say goodbye to his little girl, not knowing if he was going to see them again.
0: That must have been a a very emotional moment to go through. I'm just wondering, I know you don't speak Russian or Ukrainian. I think, you know, handing a cold person a sleeping bag is a universal language. But what has it been like communicating with the folks you've been helping?
1: Really not a problem. Um, (laughs) We've hilariously, we've become slightly infamous in the Donbasses, these Brits who who go around without a translator and our, our wonderful Ukrainian friends that we work with do not understand how we do it. But evacuating people is a very human thing, particularly with the with the type of evacuations that we do. We are not going in with a with a large coach and with lots of able-bodied people walking into them and just busting them out. We are we've done predominantly bedridden people. So we're going into someone's home, we're potentially helping to dress them we're placing them onto a soft stretcher, we're carrying them. It's always on the top floor, so you're talking nine flights of stairs, carrying this person down, putting them into the van, and then caring for them for the next few hours that they are with you. And it's it's very intimate, for want of a better word. And treating people with with kindness and with respect is is a universal thing. And we've had, so many wonderful moments that I would never probably be able to describe because they are nonverbal and and people you still find ways to laugh with people and joke with people and that's something that we've always been so surprised by is that these people are so brave you know quite often when we first take someone from their home they may be a little bit upset there may be a few tears but then they they rally so quickly and we've also found that us being British is it helps them, it helps, it's a distraction, it helps take them out of themselves from this awful thing that they are going through of leaving their homes probably forever because most of them are very old. And we, I, I mean, I remember a woman's face once when we walked into her flat you know, this elderly lady, she sat in a chair, she's dressed, she's ready to go. And I walk in in my body armor and say, Hello and she just stares at me as though I'm just an alien that's been beamed down from outer space and I'm not sure which way it's going to go I don't know if she's going to laugh or cry at this point point. and she breaks into a huge smile and, and it, it's just a lovely thing and people will quite often tell us like oh you you you're from Britain so you know we love we love the the rock bands and the old music or we love the football or Boris Johnson because Boris Johnson is very popular out here a little bit more than he is at home and it's it's just a lovely thing and and the language barrier has has never been an issue and actually surprisingly it's ended up being a positive because when you go to evacuate someone because it is quite often the final time of them leaving their home, it is a huge decision. And if they, and we've experienced this, especially in the beginning, when we did have um, a Russian or Ukrainian speaker with us, they will start to ask questions, you know, what's happening at the other end? Where am I going? And sometimes they will start to question their decision and occasionally they will change their mind. But with us, we've never had someone change their mind because I think we are that distraction and we just say, you know, hello. You've got your documents, you've got your bags, you've got a padushku, which means pillow, and 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 off we go. And and they, they come with us absolutely trustingly. Um it's 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 it was unexpected for us, um, but it's been a wonderful thing.
0: Now, geographically, and from what you described to me, um you've kind of had three brunts, three regional focuses, and as best I understand, it was Kyiv uh, initially, Donbass at one point, the South at another point. Tell me about some of the work you were doing in each and how each region or the people in each region or the work in each region kind of, how is it different from from the other work you've done?
1: Mm. Yes. No, I mean, those those three years were very different. Um, Kyiv Oblast was where we started. We, we started doing aid runs. Into Kiev City. And this is when Kiev was still frontline. So you could not drive directly there on the E40 that runs between Lviv and Kyiv. We had to cut south via Uman, which took 14 hours each way. And you had to be very careful um, to take very specific roads that were not being shelled as heavily. And we we did those first three runs into Kiev. There was a very memorable night where we slept in a children's hospital. But the time that really stuck with us was, was the fourth run, which was when we went into Bucha and Erpin. And we went in the first day that Butcher was opened post-liberation to humanitarian aid. And we had to drive over a pontoon bridge to get in there. And when we got there, we weren't sure what to expect we We talked about it amongst ourselves, and we didn't know if the van would maybe get mobbed. We knew that these people had been deprived of food for a long time, and we had to talk about every potential potential scenario that could happen and What happened was we got to these these villages outside butcher they had they told us they had not seen fresh food for forty days. And then what they did was that we handed them boxes of food and they took a few things out and they gave the boxes back. They would not take them. They took just what they needed and they left the rest for other people that we would be going on to. And we were completely blown away.
0: I think one of the the topics that has come up again and again in the the coverage that this podcast has done about uh, the war in Ukraine is the solidarity. And I think that's a rather moving, moving example of, of that. Um, let's pivot to Donbass. So you were in Kiev area visiting places that had, you know, just undergone unspeakable atrocities. And I can only, you know, wonder what you know, the people passing the box along had, had seen or experienced. Uh, Donbas, what was what was happening there? What was your role like?
1: Well, we first thing I should say is that I never thought that we would go to the Donbass. None of us had any plans to. And it was a big jump. Um, It only happened because a wonderful Ukrainian, he's become a very close Ukrainian friend of ours. He was going there to evacuate people from from Lisychansk before it fell. And he asked us if we would come with him. And, you know, we had long discussions about this and, and figuring out the Russians were just on the other side of the river in Severodonetsk, which is, Severodonetsk and going to see Chanskar right next to each other. Um, but we did, we did go with him and it was, it, it, it was very f- full We We had to try and get out by lunchtime because we were told that's when the shelling ticked up. It was trying to find people's addresses, which is a nightmare in Ukraine, um, trying to load people. It was raining very heavily. Um, there was a very old lady who we, she was the last person we we loaded into our van and she, she was very old and we'd carried her out and tried to keep her dry and we loaded her into the van and then she said to our friend, where is my cat? And her neighbor had not been able to cat to to catch her cat. So the woman said she, she refused to leave. So we had to unload her again and, and leave her. And it was awful. And thank God the next day the cat was caught and we went back and we got her out. But being in the Donbass, people quite often say to us, oh, you must be crazy to what you do, to, to do what you do. And Everything that we have done, we have ensured that we do in a very calculated way. And every every time we will make a full operational plan, plotting exactly what we're where we're going, what is our rendezvous point, what are the risks, and we make a decision. And sometimes we will not do things if you know we do not go into certain places. There are some people who will do that, but how we operate really matters to us as as a team, that we do it with, with a responsibility because it's not only just to us, but also the people we are getting out. And with the Donbass, you have to because it is a constantly moving front line. So constantly having to look at intelligence of what is happening and when. The majority of the time we were in the Donbass, we were evacuating from Bakhmut, which, of course, um, is now sadly in a very sorry state. But you you know where you can go and where you can't. The closest we went to the front lines in Bakhmut was a kilometre from the Russians, which may sound, again, it may sound crazy to some people, but it isn't. When you are in the town and there are high-rise buildings around you, so the Russians are not going to see you with direct line of sight, the only risk you have at that point is if you're very unlucky with shelling. But the shelling was predominantly at night. So you'd hear a lot of outgoing artillery, and it would be loud, And of course there is a level of risk, but it isn't necessarily the level of risk. If you do it in a certain way that people at home maybe think that it is, but it is a moving line. And even when we were living in Kramatorsk for a while, which we did for a long time, we lived in our van on the riverside. It was beautiful. And in the evenings we could watch the stars and see the missiles flying over. And then in the morning you get woken up by artillery firing out at 5am, which was really annoying. Um. You know, at some point, caravans became came within artillery range, so then we had to move and 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 pull slightly further back for where we were staying. Um, so it 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 is dynamic, it is fluid, but it can be worked around in a way that is still relatively safe.
0: So speaking of this this moving front line, so you said uh, a lot of the work that you did in Donbass was was evacuation related, but mm. you mentioned to me that recently you've spent some time in the South in places that Ukraine has liberated. So tell me a little bit about some of the the needs in these places that were under Russian control that, that Ukraine has now retaken.
1: Mm. It's, it has been shocking to see, um, even for us having been here for almost a year now, The most destroyed village I've ever seen was one just outside Isium shortly after it was liberated. Other than that, the destruction here is the worst we've ever seen. Because when you're in places like Bakhmut, yes, these places are getting heavily shelled. And yes, there are many buildings around that have been destroyed, but it still feels like a town. Here, every village has been raised to the ground. So you're talking about an entire community that has been wiped out. We've, so many villages now that we've been to, every single home has been hit. The school, the church, the village hall, the entire village is gone. And you almost can't get your head around it. We, We went to a village where There was a nuclear bunker that was built in 1952 and it consisted of two rooms, not huge rooms, but two rooms. 90 people survived there for nine months during occupation. I don't even know how they would have all had space to stand up, let alone lie down and sleep. And intermittently, one of them would have to have to risk their life to go above ground to try and find food for the rest of them. They would also do some sabotage of spotting where the Russian tanks were and feeding that to the Ukrainian army. Um, but it it was just horrendous. But what is what is a, amazing and very different about having seen things in the south is that it is now a case of life coming back. The Ukrainians are so brave and so resilient in a way that those of us who have not been in war-torn countries can't begin to comprehend. But they are coming back. They are building their houses. the day where, again, every building had been shelled, including a kindergarten where people had been sheltering in the basement. And the Russian army knew that and had deliberately targeted them. Thank God, at the time, the missile that hit, hit the room that they'd all been sleeping in. But it was during the day. So they were all in the room, the more daytime room where they'd been eating. So it didn't killed the civilians and the children who were sheltering there. But that kindergarten is now the building that is the most standing in the entire village, even though it has been hit. So they're planning to rebuild that as a school. The main school in that village, which was the primary secondary school, is completely destroyed. It is it is a gravesite because there are so many people buried under the rubble.
0: Now, regarding Uh, the physical or the the goods that are needed in these areas? What, what, what are needs like at the current juncture?
1: It's, so there's sort of two broad areas of it. So one is the most immediate need, um, which is food, clothes, um, you know, supplies for children. There are not many children left, but there are of course some and a lot for the elderly so palliative care but it's and and things so people can chop wood so axes chainsaws wood burning stoves things so people can survive right now the other sphere is more about helping them to rebuild their lives so that's more building materials tools hammers you name it anything that will help them rebuild those buildings that village that had the kindergarten, more long term, they are actually planning to build a solar panelled water pump because at the moment they are able to pump water, but it's reliant on a generator and it's very hard to get fuel into the area and they don't have a lot of money to do so. And it's impossible to rebuild the electricity lines to the mains because all the power lines have been downed and all the areas around the power lines have been mined. So they can't just put the power lines back up. And that that's very common across that entire area of of sonoblast and blast. So they're trying to build a solar paneled water pump, which is amazing, which also means then they'd be able to pump water for animals because then if, then if they can bring animals back, there will be livestock and there will be some livelihood and, and they can bring these villages back to life.
0: I want to to zoom out to the, to the big picture here, Uh, I have a couple questions left. You mentioned the anecdote about the big smile you got, uh, from the evacuee hearing your British accent. Um, any other particular anecdotes that jump out at you, you know, among, uh, your experiences with the people you've worked with?
1: I mean, there's, there are so many, and we're, we're so lucky to have met so many wonderful people here. Um, I think one I'll, I'll definitely mention is that, When we first went to the Donbass, we didn't know how we would be received. And so many people back home had told us, "Oh, they won't want you there. Everyone who's still there is pro-Russian. And it's absolutely not the case. Um, Maybe 20% of the people there are pro-Russian, maybe 20% are pro-Ukrainian. The rest of them do not care because for a lot of us in the West, we say the war started last February. The war did not start last February. The most recent invasion happened in last February. For these people, they've been living under war for eight years and they are apathetic. They just want to be able to get on with their lives. They are living on small holdings where they have their their piece of land, they grow their vegetables, maybe have a cow, and their children and their grandchildren, and they just want to be able to continue with that. But what was so wonderful is that when we when we moved into an apartment uh, in the Donetsk region. We we'd never had neighbors before. (laughs) And one of our neighbors, um, he was originally Russian. His wife is currently in Moscow. And he could not have been more welcoming to us. He would come and knock on our door and drag us down to have Sunday lunch in his flat. Um, there was a national holiday here for Miners' Day, and again, came and knocked on our door, took us outside, and on the benches outside the apartment building, they had laid out food. They had vodka, and they loved that we were there, and and they were very protective of us. They, the the bonds we have made here are are unbelievable because it's 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 very important to note that the vast majority of the work being done here is being done by Ukrainians themselves, not certainly not by the big international organisations, but even just us. We are we are a drop in the ocean in comparison, but it does nonetheless mean a lot to people that we are here. So those interactions we've had are amazing. There's a woman who I particularly think of who she was she was actually in Kharkiv blast under occupation and she was running an animal shelter. She had 50 dogs, 20 cats, three horses and under occupation, there was no running water. So she was going to fetch and carry water for all these animals every day. She did not have fresh food for two months. She herself almost starved. And then in the end, her shelter was hit by a missile. Her mother was in her 70s and had been living in Spain. She traveled back into Ukraine, cycled into occupied territory to take food to her daughter. And when they were hit by this missile, the two of them picked up as many animals as they could carry. A lot of them had been killed. And they walked 30 kilometers to Kharkiv city, where we met the daughter. And we took her to Kiev and then on to Lviv. And it was so moving because she had also spent time in Spain and was fluent in Spanish. I happened to speak fairly rusty Spanish from when I used to travel in Latin America. And we just had an incredibly bonding time. And one of her cats, you know, that she had carried all those kilometers and looked after, one of the cats died while she was with us. And we buried it for her. And, you know, these these are small things, but you you do build incredible bonds with people. There was a man last week who, an incredibly intelligent man, he had been a naval and then a commercial Marine engineer for many, many years. And he drove two women from a very dangerous village in the Herson region back into Herson city. And as he was driving them through the city, his car was shelled. And the woman in his passenger seat was killed instantly. He somehow survived. He had shrapnel on his leg. And he was taken to the hospital and her son. The next day, the hospital was shelled. And somehow he survived that as well. And the next day we got him out and we took him to a hospital a few hours north and he met his wife and his son there. But we we were together for eight hours that day because we'd also evacuated another gentleman who had to be taken to a different hospital. And he happened to be very good English. And we we chatted to him all day and it's a very strange thing because, of course, these people have been through horrific things, and you think, you know, maybe it would be awful, and these people would be would be crying and and under huge distress. But that isn't what what it's like when you're evacuating people. Partly because they are so brave, but partly because they are. It 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 means a lot to them that someone is taking care of them and 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 getting them out, and and you chat and you laugh and you joke about ridiculous things it's just very human and very raw in in a way that's very hard to put into words
0: as our last question here and zooming way back in um have you learned anything about yourself doing the work you've been doing
1: um i think the main thing is that we all tell ourselves that we can't do a lot of things And certainly when I was first coming out, I had so many people tell me, what are you doing? You're a woman on your own, going into a war zone, not with an international organization. I even had one male friend try and demand to go with me, which I said, no, thank you. You know, so many people told me that I shouldn't or couldn't do this. And you can. And as long as you are doing it for the right reasons. and you know, sad to say, there are a lot of uh, foreign people out here who are necessarily not here for for very genuine reasons. But if you if you do what matters and do it with integrity and and respect for the people that you're working with, then there's nothing really that can't be done. And we're just so lucky that we have met so many incredible Ukrainians who are doing all these amazing things for themselves and that we get to work alongside them.
0: Well, this has been an account I'm frankly not sure I have words for. Uh, So thank you very, very much for sharing your experience.
1: You're very welcome. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat.
0: Thanks to British Expeditionary Aid and Rescue for joining, and to you, listener. Once again, don't miss the donation link in the episode description. The Bear Market Brief podcast is part of BMB Russia and Eurasia, which you can follow on Twitter at the handle at Bear Market Brief. BMB Russia and Eurasia is an initiative of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, that's FPRI, a non-partisan think tank based in Philadelphia. For more information on this initiative and on many others, be sure to visit fpri.org. We'll catch you next time.